new beginning. Welcome to the Grief James podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, happy to have all of you here listening and happy to be here ourselves doing this podcast and talking to some amazing people. And again, I uh, just wanted to express our appreciation for all of you who are listening and taking your time out. doesn't matter if you've only listened to one or two or if you're listening to old ones or new ones. Uh, we hope you really enjoy it and uh, get something out of those interviews. On today's episode, we have Lindsay Whistle Fenton, and she is a senior producer at WPSU, the PBS NPR affiliate station in central Pennsylvania. She's an Emmy award-winning storyteller who is passionate about using public media to build empathy. Lindsay produced, directed, and wrote the documentary Speaking Grief and continues to produce content for the initiative's website and social media presence. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. We're going to get into much of your bio in a bit, but something that was super interesting that we saw was you uh, practiced Shotokan karate. And that's something that uh, me and, and Dr. Black are actually both fans of MMA, like watching MMA, really enjoy it. We enjoy the intricacies of it. Uh, so we really uh, respect martial arts. So tell us about that. <laughs> um, well, I, I do practice it, but I've been on hiatus, obviously, since since the lockdown started. Um, yeah, I got into Shotokan probably about 10 years ago. Um, have a wonderful sensei and a great group of friends. Um, we're pretty, pretty casual. And he actually, um, so I used to take it at the local Y and then him and his wife actually opened their own dojo and she, she deals with the, the munchkins, the mini ninjas, and then he teaches the adult classes, but he's studied all over the place and, and studied a lot of different forms of martial arts. So we do show to come, but then he'll also usually put aside like a, uh, self-defense or more of a practice application where he'll mix mm. in some um like shorn rue he's done some aikido we'll do like different kinds of like gun or nice defenses that aren't strictly parts of shotokan but yeah so i have i've been doing that about 10 years i busted my ankle pretty good last summer not doing uh karate but actually rock climbing and um Whoa. so i was on a hiatus for a little while from that and then right when i was about to go back COVID hit. So I'm a little out of practice right now, but I still, you know, I still try to throw some punches every now and then just to keep that muscle memory alive. But yeah, that's been, um, that's been a, about a decade of, of progress. It's something I came to as an adult. Oh, that's, uh, that's really cool to hear. And uh, what, what do you get out of, like, what's your benefit that you find? Or what do you miss from not being able to attend classes? Well, definitely just the community. Like I said, I've been studying under my sensei for about 10 years and him and a, a couple of the other black belts that I sort of came through the ranks with, you know, just that community and that friendship. But I originally got into karate. Is this something I always wanted to do? I wanted to take uh, some sort of martial art. I tend to like things. I tend to like things like that, like like climbing, like martial arts that are more self you know self-focused single person things I'm not a big team sport person I've never been I've never been super competitive in that sense of like needing to compete against others it's more just things that I like to sort of get in my own head and, and perfect and things that I can uh, mess with on my own time so I think for karate it's I say confidence not in I always tell people I'm like I'm not you know it's not like the movies I don't think I'm gonna drop you know eight people in a 
parking garage, but I was like, it definitely does give you, you know, just a little bit of confidence in, in feeling capable and familiar, I guess, with your own body and, and what you're, uh, what you're able to do with it. And, you know, just, just watching the progression is pretty amazing. You know, I remember, I remember thinking that when I get to green belt, I'm going to feel really good. And then I got my green belt and then I kept going. That was just sort of the mark I had in my head. But, um, and I, I will say, especially for friends of mine who have daughters, I think any, um, any kids would benefit from martial arts, but I say, you know, get your daughter in some kind of martial arts. I just think it's so good for, for confidence, for discipline and, and focus. Um, and, and not to mention the actual workout, but I think I was drawn to it more from a, from a mental place than anything. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally get that vibe. I'm like that as well with athletics, whereas uh, it's more about me uh, against myself in a lot of ways rather than trying to compete against other people. And just seeing the progress through that and through the hard work uh, of each, you know, after every year, you know, progressing and getting your belts and whatnot. And I totally agree. I think it's a great thing for people and uh, who want to push themselves, challenge them themselves, uh, get a little more assertive, uh, whether male or female. And uh, and the, 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 the what's funny is the nicest people tend to be martial artists who they don't really mm-hmm. feel like they need to. They're confident outside and they're not really scared or hesitant or, you know, I guess they know in the back of their mind that they can just kick someone in the head if they need to but like but they generally probably don't right and it's just uh i think i think there's something to that is them kind of um going through a challenging type of art form in that way and seeing themselves progress and then i i feel like they'd be calmer in the streets than than you know scared or hesitant well, yeah, and that's, um, you know, in our dojo kun that we recite, that is actually one of the, the which is our, our rules at the dojo, one of our core principles is to refrain from violent behavior. So I think that says a lot about it. But I also think, like I said, I always like like sort of athletic endeavors that have some sort of artistic component to them. Not not that all sports don't in some way, but, you know, when I was younger, I really liked gymnastics or figure skating. And then disclaimer, I'm five foot ten, so obviously not the ideal build for any of those so i think having to something like a martial art still has that same component of uh you know kind of controlled body movement and mastery of certain techniques but in in a way that's a little bit more suited to my my natural physique we have a superstar in canada that's uh i don't sure did he ever train yeah in this yes he did Tell us more, Sean. Yeah, oh, he's talking about GSP. George St. Pierre is, uh, he started out in Shotokan karate. So it's always something that uh, I've always looked at and thought like, wow, that's so cool. And he's obviously a very accomplished mixed martial artist. And I love, uh, I think his personality relates a lot to the karate he studied because he's such a humble, very humble athlete. And even at his prime of winning belt after belt, he just, he was always, you know, he always, and he was very honest. Like he always said like, I get scared before fights, you know, and, and I'm nervous. And then, you know, so I was, I really admire him. And, and obviously as a Canadian, we uh, love to follow his story, but yeah, he did uh, Shotokan karate. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I've seen a lot of even action stars uh, who, who have at least some sort of foundation or who's, who got their beginnings in Shotokan. And I've always wanted to integrate some other things that, you know, someday hopefully I'll 
get around to it. I wanted to do Krav Maga, but I can't find anywhere around me that teaches that. I'd like to add in some Aikido. But again, that's what I like about my sensei is that you sort of get like a little sampling of stuff that might not be. Um, and we've done some weapons training with bow and Phi, um, you know, so things that fall outside sort of the standard Shotokan curriculum, but that he'll bring in because we just, he just sort of flows with, with where we want to go with instruction, which is nice. And that's a good sensei because he's not rigid in his thinking of, of sticking to traditional, you know, and that's good. Yeah. And we're pretty, we're pretty casual too. I mean, he does, we, we do follow, I think some of the, uh, some of the traditions, but we're not, uh, officially affiliated with, uh, with any of the associations. And I, I just, like I said, I started training with him just cause I was looking for someone who taught specifically Shotokan after I'd done some research and just just sit right in love this teaching style and, and love the, the community of people I was in and and yeah I'm you know so I'm in my 30s now I started in my early 20s and I never had any desire we're not we're not a big competition dojo Joe we've done some things here and there but we're more just people who do it because we love it and we just like the practice of it and so I, I kind of just jived with that more I think realistic focus, a little more casual, uh, but, but definitely a, a quality teacher. Yeah. Whenever I hear like someone say karate, the first thing that always pops in my mind is the karate kid way back, uh, way back in the day. And I think there's like, there's, and what I liked about the movie is there's like two mentors, right? There's one that's really aggressive and wants everyone to win. And that's the objective. The other one is about remaining calm and being a, a valuable member to society and and you get those different people right in in any aspects of life you have a variety of perspectives and so it seems like your sensei is really on the opposite side in the sense of it's about being calm being collective it's not about winning the match it's really about something else and it seems like you really look up to him and so i was wondering how does or has it ever come up to when it comes to grief so how do you how do you deal or how does karate deal with emotions hmm that's an interesting question i have never been asked so let me think for a second the thing with karate that i think of with emotions is when we do spar this might not go anywhere so let me just think it through <laughs> let me think how i do how i make this connection um i know when we spar he always says you know sparring's good and that you get that nerves like even if you've been practicing for a long time you still you still get nervous. And he always says that, you know, that's great. And that adrenaline rush mimics how you would feel in a, in a real fight, in a, in a street fight kind of sense. And that's actually one of the reasons we, we do a lot more controlled sparring. We don't do a ton of free, like full on free sparring. We'll do semi free a lot and every now and then some free sparring. Uh, Cause his philosophy is always, I know there are some full contact, like obviously we're not doing MMA or Kyokushon or any of the full contact styles. But in the sense that we do it, it's hard to mimic what a real fight's like. You know, if you're if you're actually making contact in, in more of a an intense way in a real fight, the person's going to react differently than if you're doing it in a semi-free setting in the dojo. So then your follow-up technique's going to be a little bit different. In terms of coming to grief, I think, I don't even know if it's a choice. I think that grief kind of does that for you, It especially in its uh more acute phases or in its more intense periods it will just obliterate everything else from your mind uh so you it, it becomes very difficult to focus on anything else yeah it's interesting to just think about on how how like physical activity can help um but also how you know your specific movements 
and training is developing aspects of how people or who how people deal with grief and emotions because i know like i used to play or i guess i kind of still do but basketball and there's so many aspects of the game that translated to my waking day life in other areas right so discipline and the physical activity and just like friendships and all that stuff like relates with grief and keeping yourself moving and having a community right which is great to sort of support you in difficult times and i like how you're you uh you mentioned how it's about being one of the aspects is being familiar with your body and i think when i look at moments where i grieved heavily i was learning something new about my body and what it can do because <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> it could do that <laughs> i didn't know it could cry that long um or if it hurts that long but so like it's a for me when my dad died i opened up a new world on what the body can do because i had never been there before and it's like how do you center yourself and then and they said you're saying too with the karate one things is when you get those nerves how do you calm the mind how do you center yourself within the storm to you know remain focused and i think all that stuff would be applicable to grief in that way and be able to find or problem solve in these difficult situations where you know other people may not be able to but with that discipline that's something maybe it could help someone in that way yeah so my sensei has this saying about mind like water and keeping your mind open to to sort of flowing and being flexible in the situation that you find which obviously with grief is something we don't always have a choice about so i think from that sense definitely the training helps but then and from from that perspective of knowing your body i think something i had never thought about consciously before uh but actually uh, a a wonderful uh anatologist and grief scholar dr chichelle bourdet had had spoken with me about a few weeks ago we were, uh, I interviewed her, but then we were just having kind of a conversation pre-interview and I was talking about being up visiting my parents and that uh, I'm I'm also a very, I guess, handy person. I love doing home things and, and carpentry and really uh, working on, working on homes and things like that, which is something that I'm very fortunate that my dad has, has taught me and that we do together. So that I find a lot of stress relief in that, uh, that I'm always looking for <laughs> new projects and things that I can just sort of, you know, bang it out on. And and she pointed out to me that that can actually be a manifestation of grief. So we had a uh, loss in my family earlier in the year. My grandmother died and she, and I, you know, basically spent two weeks at my parents' house working nonstop on a new home that they bought. And she was talking about that sometimes we need those, those physical expressions of grief that it might not always come out. Uh, you know, in a in a more emotional or cognitive way, but that that can be a grief release. And I remember another another loss in my family was I had a, a cousin who died very young and very unexpectedly. And I had just finished reading uh, Marie Kondo's what is it that was the magic of tidying up uh, way years ago when it first came out. And I instantly started organizing all the drawers in our apartment apartment at the time and my husband was like you don't you don't need to do this right now I was like no I do I really do uh, I need to keep busy and it was the same right after my grandmother died I went into work because I needed to have something else to focus on other than uh, the grief that I knew was just going to keep washing over me and it did anyway you know it, it followed me to work but so I think having 
having those outlets and something I've actually come to since starting my work in this project is rock climbing. And it's very much the same I find as martial arts. I've made a lot of, uh, drawn a lot of similarities in my head and in, in, in practice of both of those sports is that both things and the climbing actually even in some instances more than martial arts, you have to be so focused on your next move and on what you're doing and so aware of your body that you don't have space in your head for anything else. And so people will laugh. I think people who've never climbed when I say it's it's relaxing, but it's such a relaxing sport and it's such a great stress relief tool because you you work it out through your body, right? You work it out through through the focus. And then, you know, I always feel a lot clearer and a lot calmer and, you know, obviously a lot more <laughs> tired and sore usually after a good day at the crag or, um, or something like that. But so I think that those, that we should, that physical tools like that and physical outlets can be really important in grief and maybe don't always get, I think it's starting to change maybe where they're getting talked about a little more. I know I've, I've spoken with a lot of people who have found um, exercise like weightlifting or yoga or even walking or running to be very, comforting or, or someplace that they can find some sort of expression of their grief. Uh, so I definitely think there's, there is something about that being getting in your body and just, just working out in, in the tension that we hold and how that manifests and, and how we move and how we feel for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, all that. And uh, actually I have to make a, a little bit of a, I got to make a little bit of edit. So GSP actually did uh Kyokushin karate, not Shotokan. So, okay. Yeah. But, well, <laughs> we're learning. We're so learning I'll, something new. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll fun fact about me that anybody who knows me knows, and I get teased for all the time. I've had a lifelong crush on Dolph Lundgren. It's been from a very young age, and he is <laughs> he is a ma- <laughs> he is a master practitioner of Kyokushin, and I actually do a very good martial artist. Mm, aside from obviously hands, an action he's star, he's a handsome man. Even at he is age. a handsome man. Yeah, but no, I know what you mean. Uh, sometimes, you know, you need a shift in perspective. Sometimes you need to do something else, get your mind activated on another thing. And it is an odd thing that when you get maybe focused in or in flow state on a certain task, like, I guess, rock climbing or like for me, it's like maybe sometimes going to the batting cage and just hitting some softballs or something. It does something where it takes you out of if you are in a in a in a, an emotional state or maybe even you know you're you're having a tough time it can help you shift that into something different and sometimes we need that sometimes maybe maybe uh you know cleaning is your thing and and you know you you're like you know what oh, i just need to you know clean the kitchen or something and, and that's that's okay you know and or gardening or whatever it is that gets you to a place where you want to get to eventually you might need to do those things and we're all different you know maybe maybe it's uh you need to take a long nap because you're like that that's how you recharge whatever whatever that situation is yeah i totally believe we're all different and we all find different things helpful and it's so much of it is just the grief experience is so different and the emotions that can stir up and i'm someone who i kind of tend to lean towards anxiety anyway in my daily spectrum so for me for sure grief can be a very anxious experience for me and it can it can really manifest as anxiety in a lot of ways and so things like that where you know i i kind of go to rumination and you know if you've ever been in in a rumination if that's the word you know ruminating over something it just builds and builds and builds and can can really become a cycle and so i think that's where some of those activities where you can focus on something else it can be really helpful to pull out even even 
much less extreme. Uh, I remember discovering a couple of years ago as an adult puzzles. Puzzles were, are great yeah. for me sometimes if I'm in an anxious space, because, but I get like hyper-focused on them and I'll, I'll just like focus on them for days until they're done. But I find stuff like that very soothing where I can just fully direct focus to it. Or you, you talked about gardening. I've never been much of a gardener, but this summer I discovered, hey, weeding is really weirdly relaxing because it's kind of like working on your house where you can see progress when you're done and you can be focused on it in the moment. So you know, whatever works, but there's some, there's some weird things out there that I think we don't realize could bring us the relief they do until we try them. Yeah. I remember going to this uh, presentation from uh, Dr. Kenneth Doka, and he sort of talked about how there's like different styles of grieving. But uh, the big thing there is that everyone's grieving differently. And what works when we're talking about speaking grief, like you could be rock climbing and be working on your grief where someone else is, you know, crying in bed and wanting to talk. And they're just two different ways of speaking grief. And it's like understanding that, like you're not running from your grief. You're working through it, rock climbing or doing karate or building something, right? And so that's why I really liked about his research was that, you know, like we tend to, when we do think about grief, we think of one aspect of grief or one image of grief, but actually there's a wide variety of what grief looks like. And it's really something that's spectacular when you think about, actually, wait a second, you know, like even I'm guessing maybe even you, when you're rock climbing or you're doing your karate, you may not even know you're working on your grief. You're just doing it because it feels better or, you know, like you're so used to doing it. But there's probably an aspect in there that you're actually processing grief and different emotions without pondering you wouldn't really think of. For sure. And it cuts both ways because over so the title Speaking Grief, um, one of our one of the goals for this initiative has been to serve kind of both halves of the equation. So to to validate that grief experience for people and as you said and and really put out there how unique it is and how normal and healthy it is that we do grieve and that there's nothing shameful in it and, and as you said, whatever you find comforting or you find helps you do your grief that's one form of speaking grief. And then the other side of the coin is that we're trying to reach people in a position to offer support. And so we wanted that speaking grief title to work one for people who are trying to speak their own grief and put it out there, but other people who are trying to kind of learn the language of grief and that being a little ironic because the language is not always, or actually is very rarely language. And the language of speaking support in grief can be very action oriented. It can be you know, the, the tangible things and mowing the lawn or, or watching the kids for days so somebody can have some space or sitting and listening. That's a huge one that we don't think of as an actual action item. But I think for anyone who's grieved anything or felt any kind of pain, the comfort of having a non-judgmental supportive presence who will just be with you or not even listen, just be with you. Um, you know, that's a that's a really beautiful language to speak. And you really see that when it comes to pets, right? Cause pets, they're, uh, they're not judging you, they're just staying with you. And for humans, I think we, we have a hard time just being with someone who's suffering. And we, like, we want to say something or we want to try to fix it. But like, if you can just be like an animal, right? If you just be like a dog, right? And just sit with you as you work through your emotions and just listen and just be there. And that's why I love animals so much. Yeah, I'm a I'm a new newly fairly newly converted animal person. So we grew up not really having any pets. We had some frogs and some tree frogs, but 
the myth was that we we my brother and I both had allergies and I, I definitely do I'm allergic to cats but I don't think either of us were ever allergic to dogs um I think my mom just kind of kind of pulled that on us but since then my brother and I have both become really devout dog people um and animal people in general but at the start of this project I not at the start probably probably about six months in uh my husband and I ended up adopting Birch who is a little sweet Maltese who was rescued from a puppy mill and just some pretty sorry shape and that was really motivated by this work in the grief space one that I spent a lot of time talking to people about end of life type stuff and we had sort of talked about getting a dog and kept putting it off because I was also getting my master's for part of this time and I thought you know maybe when I'm done with school and I have more time we can get a dog and then we sort of got to this place where I kept thinking, you know, there's no guarantee that six months from now is going to happen. So if we want a dog, we should get a dog. And we did. And the other thought was that emotional support Um, She's a great little emotional support companion. And I knew that I was going into going to be immersed in a pretty heavy space and that having this little cuddly creature who I will say is very much a mommy's girl <laughs> always near me when I'm working um, and is just such a little snuggle bug and so content just to be there you know that has been a wonderful source of that sort of because I think sometimes we don't even know what the words are we don't know what we're feeling we don't it's such a jumble and you don't like you said we don't have to say that to an animal or to a dog uh, that you you can just feel what you're feeling and they sort of just pick up on it and adapt to you and your mood um, and just offer that companionship yeah I totally get what you're saying actually my parents had that myth going on too uh <laughs> Growing up, they knew I always wanted a dog, and I was always like, "Well, your brother's allergies, and you're all, and we're all allergic." And I'm like, "All right," but um, I mean, I'm still actually slightly allergic to my dog, but it's uh, not enough to not have a dog. So, like, <laughs> so, so that's uh, a worthy trade. You're right. Yeah, it's so worthy. I'll pff, I'll deal with it. Um, but um, yeah, I got my dog uh, four or five years ago, and it really. He re he's really made an impact in my life. He's, you know, opened up my heart and allowed me to feel certain things and be comfortable feeling certain things and, and you know, trusting um, another creature, uh, in this case, an animal, with that. And I think that's been a blessing. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like, they just, um, you know, they come up to you and, and all they want is just, affection, <laughs> love, joy, play. And uh, obviously there's moments where, you know, they're like anything else, they have their moments. But uh, in the end, that, that's such a great help uh, to a person to have that bond and relationship. Because like you said, like, you know, when I, you know, get home from work and, the, you know, uh, at, at a time, you know, he's there, he's greeting me, he's joyous, he's happy, doesn't matter, I just walk through the door, I, might, I can leave for half an hour, come back, and he just comes in, he's super happy to see me, and like, <laughs> it's just like, but uh, it's, it's very helpful for people who are struggling or going through any type of emotional pain or dealing with grief, um, you know, to have that, because sometimes there are people, you know, there are people who don't have that in their life, don't have, you know, maybe don't have friends or don't have people that care about them. And that's so important. And that's what uh, a gesture is. If you are friends with someone who is grieving, I think they just want to know that they are cared for it during this time that you're thinking about them. But and that, that's something that definitely um, an animal does. And I'm glad you made that decision. 
Oh, yeah, me too. It was, you know, it's one of those things where I look back and I'm like, how did I go this long without a dog? Except I think that and I'm like, no, she was definitely the dog I was supposed to have. She's my little introvert. So we I'm very much an introvert. And we found her. My husband said, look at this little white one on the corner. And she was she'd only been there like a day and was totally terrified and hiding in the corner where all the other dogs were sort of running out at us. So we were like, yep, that's our dog. But and, and I'll own too, like she's been. So because I think I didn't have like the the fuzzy little pets growing up, I was one of those people who never really fully understood the impact that pet loss can have. Um, you know, and I, I think of myself as a pretty empathetic person, but that was definitely one of those things where people in my life would lose a pet and I'd sort of be like, oh, that, you know, that's sad, but I mean, this is a dog, you can get another one. And we actually went through a really huge grief experience with Birch at her first vet visit. So I'd had her for like two weeks, we got her right before Christmas. And I Again, she was in such a sorry state that I basically held her in my arm on the couch for two weeks while she recuperated from all this stuff. And they told us that she she had basically a growth on her bladder and that she had an inoperable form of bladder cancer and was likely going to be dead in three months. And that that was every layer of grief and trauma that I think I've experienced with human life. I mean, I was a wreck. I was, um, it was absolutely horrible. I couldn't get through the day without crying. And then long story short, luckily, uh, we were able to do another test to clarify and she didn't have cancer. She just has some kind of non-cancerous tumor. And so we just keep an eye on her, but that was really eye-opening. And then in the time since then of just bonding and loving this little creature, I realized this, you know, what a huge and special pet uh, place that pets can take up in our hearts. And I think that mirrors a lot of what I heard people say uh, with other types of grief, you know, especially with, with the death related grief of a cared about person is that oftentimes people, we don't get it right until it's our turn. And I've heard that from a lot of grieving people that I've spoke with. It's like, you know, I want my, you know, I want my friends or neighbors or family to understand, but I also don't because to fully understand, it means they're going to have to go through this too. And I, I don't wish that on anyone, but so it is, it's sort of a hard thing. Um, I think there are, I think we can open ourselves more to understanding, but even if you do have your own loss, it is, it's just so hard because it's so, so unique. But, but I think it starts by that listening and by, by actively at least trying to understand, like I probably never really took the time to listen to someone experiencing pet loss until I went through it and then, you know, understood just how devastating it could be. And, and it's so much part of you know, this gets into the secondary grief with pets too. It's it's your routine. It's, it becomes such yeah. an integral part of your day that that can be a huge loss too. So there's just so much that goes along with, with any loss. Yeah. And that's uh thank you for bringing that up actually. You know, it's such a disenfranchised uh, type of grief uh, like lots of others. And they all, they have certain similarities that people who don't necessarily have gone through something like that, or aren't aware of it, they don't quite understand how to console that person, or even just maybe they dismiss it entirely. I and, and look, it happens like I never had a dog before this guy. And I never would have really thought that people would grieve on that level as well. Like I, I just assumed, oh, people have pets. Okay, well, I guess, you know, I guess they can get another one after a while. I'm sure I'm sure they're sad. But it just never clued in until, you know, I got my dog and then I, I really understood. And then I would have uh, conversations with other dog owners 
and hear their stories because uh, you meet people all the time. And then I would, I mean, the people would come and say hi to my dog and I'm, I would say, oh, do you have a pet? And they like, well, and then they talk about their pet loss uh, story. And then I was like, oh, wow, like, man, and that and having a dog at that time and hearing about their stories, it just made me feel so it, ha- it made me connect with them a lot, but also feel very sad, like, oh, yeah, he's going to die. My dog's going to die at some point before me, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's one of those things that I had to come to terms with because it, he's brought such a joy in my life that you think about the time when he's not going to be here and you're like, oh, man, how am I going to manage through that? But I, hearing about you talk about your dog and like even in a short time, you develop this bond and, and then this this um, relationship with her. Uh yeah, that that's exactly what happens. And I'm and look, it, it I totally understand it with people who don't have dogs or pets. Like I get it. You're just that's not in it's not in your zone. But if you do have someone around you who has had a loss, you know, just look uh, to see if they want to talk about it. I had a neighbor uh, where I currently live. Their dog died shortly after we moved in, and I didn't really even know the neighbor very much. But you know, the guy came up to me and he was like, "Yeah, my dad, my dog died." And I could tell he really wanted to talk about it. So we talked for like a half an hour and, and a lot of emotions came out. And I was like, yeah, man, hey, if you ever want to talk about stuff, we can talk about, you know, what you want to talk about because I know how important that is. Yeah, and not that, and good on you for, for holding that space. Because I think so many times we can pick up on that sense that people need to share something. And I'll just say, before talking about that, one more thing, like you were talking about with the quick bonds with the dog, as we make so much assumptions about people's response or attachment. And so like when we got the news that originally that they thought she was going to die, the vet was really, he's a very sweet guy, but he was very matter of fact with me and was just sort of like, oh yeah, you're probably bummed. I know it's, you know, you just got this dog and this isn't what you want to hear. And I was like, I like, I don't have kids. So I'm like, and I'm not comparing and I'll talk about comparing grief in a moment, but I was like, this is the most maternal I have felt for another living creature. Like I have rocked her in my arms while she's recovered from surgery and been dewormed and all this stuff. And like, I love this little creature with every fiber of my being. And I know that you think I've only had her for two weeks, but like it was instantaneous and, you know, Mm -hmm. have, have coddled her and just sort of that lack of awareness that even within that two weeks, that intense love was still there from, from someone I consider to be very kind, passionate, um, caregiver, veterinary caregiver. And I think we we see that with people where we don't understand, or with any loss, we don't understand the depth of of those connections. And even now, if I imagine something happening to her, as you said, it's, you know, spoiler alert with pets, they're, they're, we're probably, um, you know, not really going to outlive them. And just the thought of not having her just takes my breath away. But with the, the comparative stuff with, like you saying, with people not understanding pet loss, I love uh, something I, I go to a lot is uh, author Megan Devine talks about both and 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 the language we use in grief and also that all grief is valid even if it's not the same. So I think especially when we start talking about things like pet loss or, or all the different things we're all grieving right now with the pandemic, there, there is that tendency to jump in and be like, how can you possibly compare yeah. losing a pet to losing a human? And the thing is like. I'm not comparing them. They're not the same, but they both are still grief. They're still valid. And we're still allowed to feel how we feel about that. And so I would love to change that narrative of like, you can hold space for all these different things. 
and there there actually needs to be zero comparison in it because it not it, there it will never be the same no matter what kind of grief you're experiencing and and definitely support people uh withholding that space and I think if you don't have experience in that arena um or even if you do like you you giving space to that guy to talk about his dog being curious about it or just just withholding what you think because even if you think you know you don't know so just asking someone I've actually become very questioned or comfortable just asking people like how's your grief going or like how's your grief stuff going because sometimes you don't really know what to ask or what it is that they're going to need to share and just asking super open-ended questions and then zipping it <laughs> and letting them um, share whatever it is in your heart because I think that's it too is like we think we need to have all this insight and when we try to be all insightful. A lot of times we're off base. So I think always just showing up with an ear and with minimal prompts, like you'll be amazed at, at what, what it is that's actually on someone's heart. Good for you to uh, start asking the question. And that's really, it's funny because <laughs> when I, I never asked before, and then I started doing the grief dream stuff. And then I started asking questions about their dreams and the, the response you would, I would get would blow my mind on how emotional they got to speak about it. And it could have been years, like 10, 20 years after the event, but no one's ever asked them. So they always just kept it in. Mm -hmm. And so when I always ask about grief, their grief now, I always throw that in because I know no one's ever asked them. Right. And so they're getting a question for the first time and most people don't bring it up. Right. They'll say, oh, they'll say something like about the, maybe their feelings or something like that. But it's very difficult for people to open up about something if you don't ask specifically about it when it comes to dreams anyways, um, for whatever reason. But let's go to your uh, the documentary now. And why was it important to be made? I think it's interesting that it even needed to be made, right? Like, this, like, <laughs> like, where are we? Where like, we need a documentary to inform us about grief. And so like, how did you get here? Or how did we get here? Yeah, it was kind of shocking that that there hasn't been more on this. And so kind of long story, but uh, I'll try to keep it short. So basically, I, you know, I work in a, for a public media station. Um, a colleague of mine many years ago at this point had originally proposed doing a project around losing a child. And just then the way projects get get developed and, and, and chug along and, and you try to seek funding, I ended up getting on involved in that at some point I had, I had requested to work on it she's since retired and I wanted to keep it going and I started poking around and doing research and was putting together uh, an in internal proposal to see if it was you know something that our station wanted to tackle and it was really shocking how little directly addressed grief that was out there there's a lot of there's a lot that deals with grief and I'm very attuned to that now uh, both you know explicitly and, and kind of more subtly that grief shows up a lot in so many things, but there was not there was not the sort of like grief 101 thing, which is in some ways what we were trying to do. There's nothing that's really that we could find that that at least in the mainstream that really tackled it head on. And I think we always look for. So I want to uh, say that it's the documentary is one compart one component of a larger initiative. So speaking grief is also the name of of the overall initiative. So our website has a lot of learning resources and a lot more video and just a lot of content that is designed for both people who are grieving and the people looking to support someone. And we also do a lot on social media with education and we do a lot of um, events and we facilitate all that as, as a means of not just creating a film, but creating something that can be used to spark further conversations. 
and to help people support each other. And I think that's what is unique about speaking grief as opposed to even some of the other things that maybe deal with grief is that in the research, one of the most devastating things that I came across time and time again was the secondary loss of other relationships. And that because we don't talk about it and because we don't understand it really and nobody teaches us how to how to do grief, we feel so uncomfortable that I, I truly believe that. I don't think it's that we're we're cruel people and we want to abandon our people in their hour of need, but we just feel so ill-equipped and uncomfortable. And I've been there too, like that we back away or we don't say anything or we say something that we think is this amazing sentence of comfort that's actually quite hurtful when you break it down. And so we felt like we could help those support people to feel more prepared and then in that way also make sure that grieving people are getting the support they need. So that's where sort of the twofold approach comes in. Because again, it's some of it's so simple. And even since this work on this project, like offering concrete help instead of just to let me know if you need anything or not saying the the sort of cheesy platitudes that, that actually do cause a lot of harm and, and just coming up with different language around that. We just all need that a little bit of a a little bit of guidance and and a little I think Something that was tricky about this too is with that guidance, there's no prescription for how to do this perfectly because it is so unique. So probably our core piece of guidance is just to be humble and authentic. And when in doubt, just always go with, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you or I'm here to listen or I'll sit with you, but, uh, you know, and not trying to feel like you have to fix it or you have to say this great thing that's going to take someone suffering away because not really possible for you to take their suffering away, but it is possible for you to help them at least not feel so isolated and alone within that suffering. Wow. That's, I'm happy that you're doing that because yeah, like our school system, I, I hope like it'd be nice if they showed this within high schools and even like elementary schools to start the conversation on what that looks like and how to cope and what emotions are. Like none of that stuff I learned growing up, you're just going with like whatever you feel or maybe you learned a little on TV, but like to actually have someone sit down, like say, hey, like these are some stuff that you that you know you can do and, and tools to cope and ways to respond in the event you or your family members um, experience this. So I'm really happy that you're you're really talking about very meaningful subject and and almost it was this happened. So you had this before the pandemic, because right now, like everyone's really focusing on this topic of, of grief and death. And it's crazy. It took a pandemic for us to talk about this, but you decided to do this before the pandemic. And I think that, you know, just the word, it's interesting how it can, it's come out at the perfect time. It really has. And that is something our team has talked about a lot. So yeah, so I, my very first iteration of, of proposing this project um, the first document I came up with in my in my files that I found was probably 2016. But even before that, we were looking at this. So this is it's been in the works for a long time, and I don't think any of us could have anticipated the rollout. And I mean, when I say the rollout, this our rollout was in May. It was like right at the height of all of this hitting. So it was it it was amazing in that it hitting at that time where I think people are more open than they've ever been. So. I, I don't know that it would have been received the same way and, and with the same, um, you know, people are really hungry for this content right now and to be talking about grief and people are a lot more open to hearing it. So 
we're still sort of processing what that means in terms of the, the, the traction that the project's gaining. And we are looking right now, we're trying to come up with a, a next phase of it. So we sort of hit our, our key goals for, for phase one, but we all really want to keep working on this. And the whole team has been so passionate about it that we're, we are thinking about, you mentioned schools, schools was a huge thing. We're thinking about what we can do for more specific resources around um, employers or, or like clergy or counselors or people who are more sort of in that front lines of, of grief work um, and how we can broaden the message and recruit more people to it. Because one thing we found is that people who are sort of in an, an active grieving experience are very eager for this. But, but, and we've had a lot of, I think, other people come to it, but we're still trying to recruit that, that audience that maybe doesn't feel that it's for them just yet. Although again, I do think that's changing with the pandemic because we do focus on death-related grief, but it's still pretty universal, like the, the messaging around it and the experience around it, whatever you're grieving. But we, the thing I, I would love for it to be, and I've actually seen some people in some comments on like a Facebook event we did, that people who are grieving are able to share it with their friends or family. And I feel like it can be a nice gentle way of you know, because when we're accused of doing something poorly, I think our tendency as humans is we get defensive. So it's not like I'm saying to you as someone trying to support me, hey, you're not doing a great job at this. But if you're able to watch something that feels a little bit more neutral, and we tried very hard to not shame people for not knowing how to do this, but to, and I, you know, I share, there's a story that I've carried with me since I was probably like 22 or 23. I was having a sleep study done. And the the technician came in and he was kind of a young guy probably around my age and he said I'm sorry if I'm kind of out of it today my dad just died and I did not I don't even think I said I'm sorry because I'm I was so moved by what he just shared but I had no language around it. I had no no understanding of what I should say or do and I just remember sitting or lying there because it was a police study and just like racking my brain and then he left the room and to this day I still carry that I'm like I cannot believe I did not acknowledge his loss and it wasn't and this is the whole message it wasn't because I didn't care it, I, I it hit me so hard you know I'm a daddy's girl like I was so emotional about it but I was so unprepared and I nobody taught me how to do that nobody taught me what to say and I let it go and I still like that to this day there's a stranger who shared that that I didn't validate even to say god I'm sorry that's terrible um, I didn't say any of that. And so I think I do really believe that we want to do better and that we want to know how to do this better. Um, and that deep down, we all recognize that we need to get better in this area. Uh, we just don't have the tools. So that's, you know, that's really what we're trying to do is just not shame people, but to say, hey, we're all human. Even when we do know better, even since working on this project, when I feel a little more prepared, I've come across people in my life who have experienced loss and I've said the things that I know I'm not supposed to say and then had to go back to it and say, sorry, that's not really what I meant to say to you. But it, and this goes back to the martial arts thing, right? It's practice. It's muscle memory. It's you're, you're, we're never going to nail something the first time we try to do it. But if you can go into it, that intent of getting better and having a little bit of instruction, you know, hopefully then the next time you'll feel a little more prepared and next time you feel a little more prepared. And I don't think we ever fully become comfortable in this space because it is so emotional and so unique but at least we don't have that moment you know like I had of just blank because you don't have any idea of what to do at least you'll hopefully have some things that you can try to draw on oh that's that's what a great comparison between how you know grief and karate and the similarities and lessons that you can learn 
and that's what i'm talking about right like it's all around us and if we can we have the like we have the tools because we've been using them in different ways and just put it now on using those tools within grief and i think you put it really uh, nicely on this practice and it's about understanding you'll make mistakes but that's that's life right like the biggest thing in life though is to be vulnerable to say you made a mistake and to own up to that and then continue the conversation thing i want to say too is that like along with the tools and the vulnerability it's sort of the recalibration of what we're even trying to do because we we have developed this narrative that grief is problematic or it's bad and that we have to fix somebody's grief or pain of any kind really this applies to any kind of pain that we're that our job when we're trying to be supportive or comforting someone is that we're supposed to like take it away from them and and getting that message out there that that's actually not possible and that's not the goal of supporting someone is not to take it away because you can't but to validate it i always you know there's there's such a power in just saying yeah you're going through this that must be hard you know that or thinks that you're going through this and just owning it and not trying to bright side it and not trying to you know i've tried to banish the words at least from my vocabulary because they are intended well usually but very dismissive and just trying to call it what it is and and acknowledge that you know that they're going through something and that is such good medicine um so i think yeah we need the tools but we also need to really shift what we're trying to build with those tools and in the building that we're trying to do is just validation and presence yeah i didn't mean like tools for them i meant tools for us it's like we need is having the right tools to be able to provide that safe space and to to own our mistakes and you know that takes work and it takes a certain set of things that we've been learning throughout life but it's providing that space and so like different parts of you and aspects of you and through life i think people can provide that but it it is work and it and it takes practice to provide that like i was never good at talking like we have a podcast i'm still learning right like, like <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say that i said listen even being aware of this and doing a podcast all the time it can be daunting in a way to approach someone you know to approach you know joshua on father's day and say hey how do you feel you know and things like that or I went to a work barbecue and there was a gentleman there who had lost his daughter earlier in the year. And I regret not approaching him and saying, Hey, how's your grief? I felt at the time and my brain's rationalizing all of this, like, well, it's, it's kind of a joyous barbecue. Like, you know, he's not here for long. Do you really want to upset him? Possibly. Like I, I had all these things go on. I had talked about, I talked to him earlier, like, like when the grief, when the loss happened, I talked to him about it, but I didn't approach him at this barbecue, uh, asking about his daughter. And I actually regret that, but like, you know, and that's the thing that's it, it. It's just like you said, it's practice. And even if you have all the two, uh, even if you know what's going on, it still requires you to kind of think about it and, uh, move with intention properly. Well, and it, it's practice and, and, you know, kind of, in your defense, too, it, it goes back to that people are so unique and you need to take your cues from the person. So there's, you know, there's there's been some loss in my family and some people I know where I'd say by and large from, from all the people I've spoken with, most people do welcome the chance to talk about their person or have their grief acknowledged. But I know some people who either find it too painful or who at least in a public setting like that 
who do just sort of want to not go there in that setting. And so, you know, I've had people like that where I've tried to open those conversations and then I'll pick up on they're trying to put on their kind of, you know, public face right now, but then in, in a text message or a call or letter, they'll be more open with me. So, so it is a learning experience and it is, it is hard when it's, because even it's person to person, but it's even day to day within the same person. I, I heard that a lot from people is that within, you might do something for someone that was the perfect thing that month or that year, and then you might try to repeat it and their grief has changed in a way that it's maybe not as comforting as it used to be. So I think, I think it cuts both ways with having, it really goes down to the authenticity, you know, of the relationship and being able to have that dialogue from both parties. And and I'll say too, I still struggle. I think I struggle more with people who are maybe like a, a circle or two removed from me. Like I feel like with, with sort of my close people, I, I have a better sense of who they are and how to read them. But with people I like more like acquaintances or coworkers that I know they've had a loss, but I'm not as close with them. You know, that's still hard for me. You know, I still, I still struggle with how to acknowledge that. Um, but I do sort of go back to, and this is again with the language and, and Megan Vine shared this. I don't want to take credit for her ideas. I'd asked her that once and she said, there's nothing wrong with just using the word acknowledge to saying, you know, I, I heard this happen to you and I, and I don't know what to say, but I wanted to acknowledge that you, that you had this, this loss in your life and, you know, I'm sorry. And so it's, it, it is tricky, but it's, yeah, it's definitely practice and, and good for you for recognizing, you know, that moment of, you know, so now maybe next time you'll, you'll have that experience and that muscle memory. And then, um, you know, that's how we, that's how we learn and grow with anything. And we're all, we're all works in progress. You know, this is not easy territory. No. And that's why, you know, if we're just getting a documentary out, documentary out now, like, like <laughs> I can only understand where the population's at. Oh, <laughs> um, so I'm curious uh, when it comes to your own loss, have you experienced anything? I know I've read a bunch of stuff um, about you already, but uh, a lot of listeners may not know. And did you go into the project experiencing your own grief or was that something um, that happened later on? Kind of yes and no. So this is where we, you know, I know I've talked a lot about um, validating other people's losses. I think we also have to retrain ourselves to validate our own loss experiences because we, because of this comparative nature of around grief that, that we're trying to get, you know, shift to all losses valid. And because of, I think the, this way our society handles grief, I've, I've had losses, but I, didn't always validate them as the losses that they were. So, and I also, yeah, not to, not to keep quoting Megan, but I just love, Megan's a beautiful writer with a great way, way of words. And she has a phrase that I've started using, those losses that reorder the world. So I hadn't had one of those losses. Um, I haven't had one of those losses yet because I think it, it, it's inevitable and I try to be open and accepting to that reality of living. Um, but, you know, so I hadn't really had one of those, you know, friends, close friend, parent, sibling, um, spouse, I had a child, I hadn't had one of those losses, um, I still haven't going into the project. And I think, and I started being really transparent with people on my calls because I realized that people sort of assumed that I did and that that was why I was doing this work, which I think is really interesting because it sort of speaks to that, like we leave grief in this corner and so we don't have a choice. So I think people were a little surprised that I was coming to this with, with the passion that I was not sort of being in that in that club that nobody wants to be in. But then in the time since working on this project, uh, well, so my, so I lost 
my cousin, he was 23 and had a very promising life ahead of him and had just um, gotten his MBA and had an internship lined up and he died of an overdose. And that was our family's sort of first experience with one of those out of order losses um, that was very surprising and very unexpected. And I'll share for me is very confusing as well because, and this goes into a lot of, you know, the swirl of emotion that is grief. So um, when I got the call that, that Tyler, my cousin had died, I had been taking a nap and my mom had called me and left a message that I didn't listen to explaining that he had been taken to the hospital and that he was unresponsive, but I didn't get that message. So I just called her back and she was screaming hysterically and sobbing and just started yelling, he's dead, he's dead. And I thought it was my dad. Like instantly I was like, oh, this is, um, this is my dad. And then, you know, in that like five or 10 seconds, like the amount of thoughts that can go through your head is, is pretty amazing. So I, in some ways feel like I had a little bit of a preview of that experience. Like for that few seconds, I very much felt like my dad was dead and I felt like I had that reaction. And then when I was able to calm her down and clarify it, um, I realized it wasn't my dad and there was like a split second of relief. So I carry a tremendous amount of guilt as part of that grief experience. Um, and I know, you know, I can rationally say I'm human and that, you know, it, I didn't consciously feel that, but you know, rational, <laughs> rational thought doesn't yeah. always go well with emotion. So I'll be very transparent that that is a very messy sort of grief for me for a lot of reasons. And then, um, and that's the least of it, just we didn't know that he was suffering from the disease of addiction. So it was very shocking. And then since then, I've lost both of my grandmothers who were my last, last grandparents. I lost my last living grandparent, my grandmother in February. And then my other grandma died, I think it was four years ago. And those have been, those were very, it's interesting, very different grief experiences. I think largely because of the circumstance, because I did have um, a special relationship with each of them. But with my dad's mom, it was more like sort of the picturesque, like we all managed to get home and we had, you know, we, we were with her for like the, the weekend leading up to her death. And I was with her at the moment she died, which is, you know, a pretty intense experience if you've ever been with someone as they leave this earth. And, you know, that grief was very, for me, was very acute and, and very um, intense in the first like weeks and a um, couple months after. And it was just such a such a raw thing. You know, I just remember sobbing on her lap after I watched her go, but it, it kind of burned bright and hot for a shorter period of time. Whereas with my mom's mom who just died, uh, I wasn't there. I was actually supposed to come home and visit the weekend before, um, visit my parents and also see my grandmother and just, you know, life gets in the way. So I didn't make it. And then I got a call a couple of days later that she died. And it's, um, I would say it's like weird to say it's surprising that a 97 year old dies, but like she had nothing wrong with her. That was sort of the joke in our family is that she was going to outlive everybody. Like she had no major health issues. Um, she's just getting older. And so that grief has been very different. Um, I'm still in a very, either consciously or unconsciously state of avoidance where it's really painful. And so I can't, I have moments, like I had probably the first day I really felt it. And then I sort of have distanced myself from it a little bit. And I think because of the circumstances being what they are, where it is a little bit more removed, like I wasn't there and I didn't have that closure and we haven't had a memorial. So it doesn't really feel like she's gone yet. Um, so I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure it's going to come out in bits and spurts. And it's like, I don't think it's denial because I know that she's dead. I think it's, I think avoidance is a better word. I think I'm consciously just like, I know that that box of grief is sitting there and I haven't gotten myself to go pick it up 
just yet. Like I'll, ha- I'll, I'll kind of crack the lid and then it's like, nope, not yet. Um, but so that's been interesting. <laughs> yeah, you're not denying. You're talking about it right now. So, <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it's right there where you're like, I see you. <laughs> I see yeah, you. I'm just like, yeah, someday. Like, yeah, maybe at, the, maybe at the memorial. Like that was interesting actually with both my cousin and my other grandma. So I think for the first time in our family, there was, um, so, and so I had lost my grandfather and then my, my sort of step-grandfather when I was little, but I was much younger. So it was just a very different, it didn't have quite the same relationship and same sense of what was happening. But, oh, anyway, so they, so with um, my cousin and my grandma, they were both cremated, which meant that we ended up having the memorial service like three or four months after for both of them. And that was weird because it was sort of like, I had sort of like, you know, gotten to a more comfortable place. And then going back to the memorial, like having that time pass, which I'm always conflicted about that. I'm like, I love that we don't have to like rush people into this emergency. Like we have three days to get the funeral together, what, you know, whatever we do, you know, for, for other types of services. But that was also hard because it was hard in a different way of like, yeah, I've sort of, um, sort of come to a peaceful arrangement with, with this grief. And then it was just like, raw and immediate again going back into the memorial service so i'm thinking that maybe for my grandma who uh, died more recently that maybe the memorial will be will be the sledgehammer i need to bust that box open you never know right? you never know where it comes and where it comes out and how it's being worked through right because you think you could be avoiding it but you're actually working on it unconsciously and just like yeah maybe right like doing these podcasts and talking about it in some way is doing something like you're voicing your emotions about it so i think it's funny because like the mind's so funny you could think you're avoiding it but you're working on it and so it's like an indirect way of actually progress <laughs> yeah i think it's like that gut punch avoidance like actually the other morning i'll share my mom had made we couldn't find the normal coffee and she made this like flavored coffee and for a second so my grandma used to always drink hazelnut coffee and i hated it like i didn't play for it but every time we would have dinner at her house or something like always be hazelnut coffee and so my mom made i think she said it was maple which like it was a doll that was laying around the house because we were out but for a second it sort of smelled like that hazelnut and i was like whoa are you making hazelnut coffee because that's grandma's coffee and it was nice because it wasn't a bad thing it was just this memory of and i kind of smiled because i remember thinking how much i hate the flavor of hazelnut but that was still very much um reminding me of my grandma so you know there there are those moments that, that pop up but and they're not always painful but those sometimes they are yeah i think that's the thing with grief right because i think when we talk about speaking grief sometimes we think when we're dealing with grief we have to be in deep sorrow but i don't think that's the case mm. i think some people are and that's one way it comes out but the human mind is a, has this phenomenal ability of working through stuff without us even knowing and even having those positive memories and stuff like i don't take that lightly i don't see oh that's that's not a that's avoidance no i'm saying you're working through it in a different way from your expectations of how you work through other ones right and so it doesn't mean it's you're not doing stuff it's doing stuff but maybe because you've changed through those other losses and through the documentary and and what you've learned through life maybe it's just a different approach the mind's taking like you don't know until it happens right and so it's really just being a witness to what's going on in your life hmm. i like that and that's actually very helpful for me so thank you for for that gift of perspective Hey, it's all about speaking grief we just really don't we learn from talking to other people right and what's going on and I learned so much through grief from looking at dreams, right? Like it's just a different perspective on what people are going through. And I, you see these dreams, not all of them are negative and it doesn't mean they're not working through it. They're not like, they're not in deep sorrow. 
some of them like most dreams are so positive and it gets me understanding that you don't need to have these negative dreams of deep sorrow or to wake up in deep sorrow to be working through your grief a lot of them are very loving and they feel loved when they woke up and that's a part of grief too to feel those feelings of those positive feelings and where you are so um, i'm really curious about throughout your talks with everyone on your documentary did the did speaking grief dreams ever come up <laughs> Yeah, so it was you. You'd asked me that in the email, and I was thinking about it. And the, they came up sort of indirectly in a conversation with a woman whose mother had died, and she said that that was actually something people would say to her a lot in an attempt to offer comfort. I think is they would say, "Oh, your mom came to me in a dream," or "I saw your mom in a dream." Um, and I, I gathered that this happened to her several times, but it had the opposite effect because she would sort of come back with, "Like, well, she didn't come to me. Why'd she, you know, why'd she come visit you and not visit me?" Um, which I think I would probably have the same reaction. So I thought that was interesting because that was actually probably the first time I had really thought about dreams and grief and articulated that those were grief dreams. And I feel like I've had some conversations with people around that where like they would feel comforted if they if they could see their person or if they did see their person. So that's actually something I'm curious about. I listened to a few of your podcasts, but so are is your understanding that those are are like actual visitations or is it like something that we manifest to because I'm I'm like super open mind open minded about things so I'm always curious like is that I'll give you the answer out, I'll give you the answer yeah. out there <laughs> yeah okay yeah, okay, yeah the no there's we don't have an answer and that's the the okay. that's the mystery of life and that's the beauty of where we are and the more we talk the more we learn about where people are and so you know for people that aren't spiritual they have similar dreams to the people who are spiritual. And the ones who are spiritual may have more reference to their religion or their um, state of understanding of the afterlife. But for the most part, they can be very similar. And the reaction when people awake can be quite similar. So you don't, your belief or, or of the afterlife doesn't seem to have a huge impact on the benefits of these dreams. So the dream itself, I think, is doing its own thing. So visitation or not, it's still doing its own thing um, while someone's sleeping. That's what happened to me. Like I didn't wake up and then I processed a dream and then I became better. What happened was the dream itself, I woke up, I was changed. And that was the mystery to me. How did I get, how did I change through a dream? In the sense, I was just super depressed and didn't really know what was going on. I had this dream of telling my dad goodbye and that I loved him. All of a sudden I woke up and something changed. And I look back, I'm like, maybe I had those blocks and saying that helped, but I think it's something more mysterious and all that. And I still don't understand it, but yet I love talking about it because there is this sense of mystery. And because no one asks the questions, we don't know really much about it. And hence why I did like so many research projects for my MA and PhD to give some credibility to the topic so we can start talking about it within the aspect of grief in general. Because you go to these theontology courses that talk about grief and train people to talk about grief, but they don't talk about this. So even within this subject, people are isolated and feeling alone for answers. Like that person who didn't know why she wasn't having a dream. And that was one of the questions I looked at. So my thing's not like, is this a visitation or not? My thing is, what are your concerns? And can we use research to help alleviate some of those misunderstandings that you may have? going forward. But I will say when it comes to the mystery of these dreams, most people have positive dreams, which is very unique and very interesting because after 
trauma and really just in dreams in general, most people have negative dreams. And so you would think people would have negative dreams because of their grief when it comes to the deceased, but it's actually the opposite. So that let, I'll let everyone sit with that. Don't understand it yet, but it is different. And so they're acting differently than normal dreams. I'm glad that individual did mention something about her dreams. And the, the wild thing about it all is that most of the people you talk to would have had their dream, a dream of the deceased. That's the crazy thing. So only one person of how many people did you interview? I think, well, so we did, I want to say it was 42 interviews. Some of those were, were grief professionals, but m- the majority were families. Yeah. So you'd think 42, you'd think like 37 people probably would have had their own dream. They just didn't mention it to you. And that's, that's where we are when it comes to opening up conversations about all areas of grief and the experiences we have. And so uh, if ever happens again, uh, the research I, I did um, actually showed, showcased that it is dream recall in general. So that's the main predictor. So people who remember their dreams the most are going to remember more of these types of dreams. So it could be that that woman just didn't recall her dreams that often. And so because of that, she's not going to have a high likelihood of remembering one of these types of dreams. And when I've shared that with people, it really released a lot of the anxiety around that and a lot of the frustration because when in grief, you people have a hard time connecting those those dots. And that's what the research sort of did. So it's usually their recall rate is really poor in general. And uh, that can be an answer if someone ever uh, brings it up to you again. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, that, that's helpful for me too, because I, I wouldn't say I'm feeling anxious about it, but definitely you saying that most people have these and look, well, I haven't had any about my people. You know, so there is, I think that like, well, how come I didn't get one? <laughs> Hey, give it time. Give it time. <laughs> sometimes it takes a. Uh, sometimes it takes coming on the podcast to get one of these. <laughs> one of these. But yeah, it's just bringing up the conversation and even the possibility that it is possible that you may even want to dream about it. We've talked to. I've talked to a bunch of people who never had a dream, but they also don't want to dream because it'd be too scary for them or it'd cause too much uh, discomfort. Um, so it's really also asking the the follow up question is, do you want one? Also, the next one is, what would if you do, what would that look like? And it just allows people to then start thinking about it because they haven't, a lot of people just want to, but they don't know what they want. And we will be asking that question right now. What can, <laughs> since you haven't had a dream yet of anyone who died, what dream would you want to have if you could tonight? Hmm. Well, let's see. Probably my grandma, just because I, I didn't, that's the first thing that comes to mind. So I'll just go with it because I didn't get my goodbye with her and I, I didn't get to see her, you know, in, the, in that month or two before she died. I think just, I don't even know specific words just to see her again and give her a hugger and, 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 and less, um, give her a hug and less, um, less about what she would say to me and just, you know, say goodbye and I love you and, and get, and get to see her receive that. It's interesting, too, because like during the pandemic, that's like the one thing that I miss the most is like hugging and like mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like a hug dream. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> well, and it's, it's, my grandma was not I don't think she was like the warm and fuzzy grandma, but I was thinking that I was like, you know, I would hug her hello and goodbye. But like we were more like she was very much she was like the cool grandma. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, what else did I say to her? And I was like, well. I feel grateful in that I feel like I've said a lot to her. And I'm also, I'm a big letter writer. So I wrote, I wrote a lot to both of my grandmas. I would write to them every week. And, um, you know, I remember telling my grandma, like she was, 
she traveled the world and she, um, she, you know, she was, she was widowed for a long time and just lived life on her own, did her own thing. She was always trying new things. She would join new clubs and she would go to plays and movies. And she loved that I worked for public television because she loved CBS and NPR. And um, so I feel like I rem I've said to her how much I admired that in her and how, you know, how cool I thought that was and how much I, I hope to be like that. Um, as I get older, so I, I was trying to think, I was like, well, will I say that stuff to her? I was like, well, I feel like I did. And so I think, that, you know, the only thing left to say would just be, I love you and goodbye and, and the hug. That's nice. And what would the location be? Hmm. Well, let's see. What came to me is just her old apartment. It was, I think, the second last place she moved to because she'd gone through a series of of different apartments as her as her um, as she aged, and it was the one probably two apartments ago. That's just where I'm picturing it sitting in her little living room with her and just how we always were and, and hugging her there. Oh, that's beautiful. And so I hope you have that dream tonight. If you do, you know, let me know. <laughs> You're so excited. I'll report back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so the other big announcement we, ha we, uh, we have to make before we wrap the show is that before, when it comes to Speaking Grief, the documentary, it was only available to the TV, which a lot of people don't have cable anymore i know i don't <laughs> but there's something new coming coming out you want to talk about that yeah so so speaking grief has been airing on public television stations since may and it's there's still a lot more air dates scheduled um but the the way that public television does is that each station can schedule their own so if anybody does want to watch it on that that um old-fashioned box called the television um there's a link on our website called speakinggrief.org and there's a find air date so you can see if it's if it's scheduled uh, for your local station. But so on August 30th, which happens to be National Grief Awareness Day, we, um, and this is all people have been asking for a long time how they can get to see it. And just to put out there, we're not like purposely hoarding it. It's just the way that our distribution agreement is that we, you know, there's an exclusivity period where it has to be over only on television. So we are at the end of that, which means we get to stream it online. So starting August 30th, Speaking Grief, the full documentary will be publicly and permanently available on speakinggrief.org. For anybody to see and use and share that's amazing so please go out there and you know check that the documentary out and you know is there a place for people to gather or say comments about the the film and what it maybe brought up for them yeah so we have um we have a pretty active social media presence on both facebook and instagram i would also encourage people to check those out because we use them uh really as a space for for learning and discussion on grief, not just as something we do to promote the film, um, particularly Instagram. We try to come up with little snippets that people can take away and, and learn about even if they're just scrolling through. But so there's the Facebook page. There's also a group on Facebook that we are working to sort of redesign to be more um, to be more intentional. We're working to, to get to get a counselor in that space to make it a really uh, responsible um, and safe place for people to speak their grief or to share thoughts about uh, the film. So definitely start by going to our Facebook page. And then there is a discussion group on there as well that, that we are working to continue to grow and develop and serve the needs of the community. Nice. Well, it's been a, a pleasure to talk with you about all sorts of topics. I bet you didn't think we we're going to be talking about karate. <laughs> I didn't. And kudos to you as an interviewer. I was not ready for that. I was ready with my normal. So yes, you are, you are wonderful. Wonderful conversationalist and interviewer, and thank you for, for giving me. I never get to talk about karate, so that was fun. 
Well, that's the big thing. We never do either. So why not now, right? <laughs> and then why not? Why not now? And we also know you're doing a lot of uh, speaking engagement. So it's like, how do you make it fresh so it doesn't sound repetitive? And you know, I think it's it's a great way for us. That's how we really bridge in the conversation of grief. And sometimes that's the way to do it, right? So once again, thank you so much for everything that you're doing and experiencing and willing to learn also. For me, like when I see people willing to learn and to practice, that means so much to me because you're right, we're not perfect. And once you can acknowledge that, that's like the first step for providing that safe space and to grow in as a, a person who can provide that, that love that people are really longing for. And to be almost, is it like a companion pet? <laughs> can be can bring that that space into any environment they they go to and so before we uh wrap up i also want to say we had megan divine on this podcast and she talked about um actually coping through the tango and that's why it's kind of interesting. we always <laughs> talk about these weird things but she used the tango a lot to cope with her grief and so if people want to check out that episode that is episode 89 if to go back into uh the podcast reels for that but yeah it's uh it's it's been a great pleasure and you know I wish you all the best with the movie or with the documentary when it comes out and when you get that Facebook group let me know and we'll put it into our grief dreams group. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation and and thank you for for creating a a safe and also fun space to, to have this conversation. Appreciate it. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Um so people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you wanted to contribute to the podcast, uh help support us, you can do so. There are links on our website, uh griefdreams.ca again. Uh if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh we're on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we'd like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.